0: I
2: Shalom and good afternoon, or good noon, I guess I should say, to everyone. Um, I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. It is my pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, Thanks for joining us during your lunch hour for a very apropos uh, topic, Judaism and food. Today we will be, um, today will be the first of three lessons or three classes that Rabbi Jeremy Simons and I are teaching together. Let me, one second. Okay, now, now we're recording. Hi, everybody watching later. But uh, this will be the first in three classes that we're doing in this series. The first today, we're gonna be talking about contemporary or modern takes on Kashrut, on Judaism um, and how we view the ethics of and morality and spirituality of eating food. Uh, Rabbi Simons will be leading next week, next Friday at this time on, and he can explain this in a much more exciting way than I can, but the intersection of Jews and the American food experience. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, debatable whether matzo ball soup uh, on Passover or Chinese food on Christmas is a more quintessential Jewish American food. Uh, Jeremy will be talking all about Um, how American culture has shaped uh, the Jewish food experience. Finally, we'll be talking, uh, teaching the last class together on the, uh, in America we have so many uh, conceptions of what Jewish food is that are largely Ashkenazic. Um, We are gonna be in our last class talking and and I wish we could uh, smell through the Zoom screen uh, or taste through the Zoom screen, but sharing different food traditions from Jewish cultures and communities all around the world, not just the ones that we're used to. But so uh, since we only have an hour today, let's just jump right in. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and feel free if you wanna jump in with questions or comments
1: to do so. And then we will have definitely time at the end for a little bit of discussion. So here we go. Everything you wanted to know about Jewish food.
2: Before we begin, um, I want, or as we begin, I want to share this quote from the Torah. Um, I had never read this these verses quite in this way before reading, um, beginning to read this book, The Sacred Table, which I highly recommend um, on this very topic. It's called The Sacred Table: Creating a Jewish Food Ethic put out by uh, the CCAR Press, which is the Reform Rabbinic Press, um, edited by Rabbi Mary Zamor. So I had never read this quote uh, quite in this way. This is when, um, God in Deuteronomy, when uh, God is telling us, um, framing the mitzvot, how hard or not hard to follow the mitzvot will be for us. And this is what God says. Surely this mitzvah, this commandment, which I enjoin upon you this day, is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that you should say, who among us can go up to the heavens and get it um, and impart it to us that we may observe it. So this is uh, God is saying this is not above and beyond what you can accomplish. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us? and impart it to us that we may observe it. Know this thing, these commandments, this Torah is very close to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart to observe it. And I love this um, framing of a class and, and a book about Jewish food ethics, because food is something that we hopefully do two, three, four, five times a day. It's one of the things as human beings that, uh, we One of the actions that we undertake most. And from the beginning of our tradition, from the Torah, food is framed as something that we do um, on a moral level, an expression of, of our morality, of our priorities, and as a um, expression of the values we place on how we treat other beings, whether they're plants, uh, animals, or uh, in the case of mushrooms, fungi. So let's move on to a little bit about what kashrut is generally. And then we'll talk about um, a little bit later in today's class, what, how do we rethink kashrut for a modern context? So what is kashrut? Does anybody just want to jump in and, and share? What, what, how would you define kashrut? And by the way, kashrut is just the Hebrew word for the kosher system.
1: Okay, well, if you uh, change your mind, feel free to hop in.
2: I would say that Kashrut is a series of laws or traditions that guide how we um, procure, produce, and eat food. Um, why Kashrut? Why is Kashrut important? Um, we often hear, uh, we often hear that Kashrut is. Th- uh the rationale behind the kosher laws is because they're healthier. Why in ancient times did did um, our ancestors not eat pigs? Uh because they were they rolled around in gross stuff. And um, why do we not eat bottom feeders, fish that eat bottom uh, you know, uh stuff from the bottom of the sea or the bottom of, of a river or a lake, because uh they're dirtier, they're more likely to contain parasites. Um, we often hear that and that is probably stems from the commentary of the Rambam of Maimonides who um, broke the, the Jewish laws into two categories. Well, even before Maimonides, Jewish laws were broken in two categories, Mishpatim and hukim. Mishpatim are the ones that um, it's clear why this law exists. Uh, there's a there's an easily identifiable ra- identifiable rationale as to why this law exists like do not murder, right? That's a pretty easy uh, um, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know why murdering is bad because it hurts other people um, because it's stealing another person's life, etc. There are other laws um, the one that comes most clearly to mind is shotness the the idea that we don't mix um, uh, flax and linen in our garments, um, which doesn't really make any logical or rational sense. Why would God tell us not to mix two different types of um, of not linen of material in our garments? Nobody knows. Uh, it's just because God said so. What Maimonides said was no. In fact, all of the Jewish laws have some rationale behind them. And um, maybe there's some that we don't understand, but um, God has a, a reason for each one. And the, the reasoning behind all of the Kashrut um, laws is because they're, they're healthier. Maimonides was a doctor as well. And so um, he, was, he was very focused on the health aspects of these laws. But in fact, we know um, that, well, in fact, we know health can't be the only reason for kashrut. What is the other reason that is often given for why certain things are kosher and why certain things aren't? Because it's ethical, right? The way that we um, slaughter cattle, for example, in Judaism, is um, we slice the, the jugular in, a, in one fell swoop with a very sharp blade. With the notion, or with the with the hope that that is going to kill them in the quickest and most painless way, that they will bleed out most quickly, and um, that that implicit in that is the idea that we don't want to harm animals, or we want to minimize our harm on animals, and so we we try to come up with a way of of slaughtering them that is the least painful possible. Um, So ethics are. Um, another reason given why we don't eat or we do eat certain animals. But there's another reason I think why neither of these two explanations for kashrut is completely acceptable, completely satisfying, because there's certain um, uh, foods, for example, oysters, which we know to be perfectly healthy and which don't suffer at all, um, and yet we're forbidden from eating them. Or why Why shrimp? Uh, sorry, why salmon is okay and cat, and, well, catfish, I guess, gets the bottom feeder, but shrimp, why, why can we eat salmon but not shrimp? There's no real difference in health, although I guess you could say there's higher iodine and higher cholesterol in shrimp uh, than salmon, and salmon has higher omega. Threes to omega six ratio. I'm not a dietitian, so don't take anything I'm saying too seriously. Uh, but um, there's there certainly seems to be some arbitrariness in which kinds of foods are acceptable that you can't really define by either ethics or health. So what is the other reason behind why kashrut? Because God said so. Because these are things that are, were written down in the Torah and that um, our people have been abiding by for thousands of years. Um, some scholars say that the reasons why uh, certain animals were forbidden, like pigs, was because our neighbors, the Philistines, didn't eat them. And uh, what is one of the best ways to, ha- to develop or engender a cohesive group identity? is to make you different from the other people around you. So if we could all uh, sit around a table as Jews or as Israelites and um, eat our stuff and say, we're definitely not like those Philistines over there who eat pig, then that was a way of of, um, fostering a stronger group identity among Jews. So that's perhaps another um, kind of academic uh, rationale as to why Kashrut exists. But I think the the main, anybody who studies kashroot knows that the main prohibitions are all around the idea of eating animals. Um, There's certain, trying to think, I don't think there are really, there are no prohibitions on any food source that is not an animal. All of the prohibitions of food sources um, are animals. There's no herbs that we can't, eat. There's no uh, minerals. There's, it's not like we can't eat salt. Um, The, all the prohibitions are around animals, but this actually takes for granted that the notion that we can eat animals at all. So if you actually go back to the very beginning of Genesis, the beginning of, of the Torah, you'll, you'll notice that the entire world at the very beginning was vegetarian. Um, this quote is from the, the end of the creation, the first creation story in Genesis, Genesis 129. God tells Adam, um, the first human being, God said, see, I give you um, every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. So we see that in the ideal world, the Garden of Eden is, is kind of this mythological um, it's the word Uh, utopia until uh, one of the human beings eats from the tree of fruit and then, uh, or sorry, the the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then that, that obviously starts us on a downward spiral. But until that point, the garden of Eden is looked at as this perfect ideal place. And I I think it's really important to say, wow, at least one of the, um, one of the philosophies undergirding the Torah is that in this ideal place, people didn't eat meat. People just ate plants. But all we have to do is wait um, uh, nine chapters, eight chapters, and according to the Torah's um, genealogy, 10 generations until we get to Noah. And,
1: why did God destroy the, the world with the flood in the Noah story? The reason why was that
2: people were being mean to each other. People were killing each other. Um, they, they weren't acting morally towards one another. And God said, forget about this whole project. I'm going to destroy the world and start over. But so as a concession to human bloodlust, um, God saying, I created this species that for for whatever reason likes to kill um, other beings. I don't want them to kill humans. And so as a concession to their bloodlust, I'm going to let them kill um, and eat other animals. So it's only after the flood story with Noah that we get permission to eat animals. And that is this quote, every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. As with the green grasses, I give you all these. So there's always been this tension in the Torah and in Judaism between vegetarian as being an ideal, but a concession to human nature that food is delicious, or excuse me, that meat is delicious. um, And so that we should also perhaps have the opportunity um, or permission to eat meat as well. But what comes along with eating meat, animals have a very different um, moral implication than plants. Plants, as far as I know, don't feel pain in the same way as animals do. And so coming along with eating animals is a, a new set of rules or a new set of laws about how we treat them in an ethical way if we're gonna consume them. And so one of these rules given after the flood in the covenant between God and Noah, Which is actually viewed as a covenant between God and all people not just because Noah was pre-Abraham like pre just the Jewish people Noah is viewed as kind of an archetype for all human beings and so um, the covenant God makes with Noah should apply to all humans according to the Torah God um, tells Noah you can eat animals but you can't for example tear off one of their legs and eat that, and then leave the rest of the animal to live. You can only eat meat from dead animals, although you can eat meat from an animal, we learn later, that you found dead on the side of the road. You actually have to slaughter them ritually, although all those rules come later. Um, But back in those days, you can imagine before they had refrigeration, they, killing an entire sheep or an entire cow that was a lot of meat that you couldn't necessarily eat all at once. And so one way of, of preserving meat for longer would be to, to tear off part of it and um, let the animal continue living and hopefully heal or at least wait a little bit longer till it died um, and then consume it later. Obviously, this is incredibly barbaric and, and uh, disgusting by our moral standards. But aco- apparently in the ancient world, this was not so out of the question. And so one of the innovations of Judaism um, and the Torah is to to outlaw such inhumane treatment. I I, um, bring that up because all of kashrut, essentially, or much of kashrut, is trying to um, say, if we eat animals, let's develop a moral system through which we can minimize the harm that we do to them
1: or minimize the suffering. So let's talk a little bit more about the concerns that kashrut has
2: with animals. First of all, we know that there's certain animals that we can eat, um, animals that have cloven hooves and chew their cud, right? Cows, um,
1: anybody want to jump in and say their favorite kosher animal to eat? You're welcome to if you want.
3: Chicken, this is Waynette.
1: I'm sorry, Waynette, are, are you saying something? I actually can't hear you.
2: I mean, it might be my speakers. One second.
4: I, I said chicken was my favorite kosher animal to eat. Chicken soup, baked chicken, chicken salad.
2: Did you say that again, Waynette? I'm sorry.
4: I'm sorry. Chicken was what I said. Chicken.
2: Chicken, who doesn't like chicken? And especially in uh, in the South when we have Gus's and Chick-fil-A and all the delicious chicken. Exactly, chicken and poultry is permissible. Um, Sophie Weiss jumps in and says salmon, exactly. Um, Plenty of fish. Some fish aren't permissible like catfish. Um, In order to be permissible for fish, you have to have fins and scales. Um, There's some animals, like birds, like uh, birds of prey that we don't eat. Um, actually one that is, is halakhically questionable is an ostrich. Um, an ostrich seems to, to qualify based on all the rules that we have about birds, but, uh, they don't know exactly where to, to cut it to get, because the neck is so long They don't know where exactly to, to slice the neck. Uh, and so over the generations, that's been one that has said, uh, well, conceivably it's kosher, but nobody's ever slaughtered it in a kosher way. So it's not, we, we don't eat it. Um, this is obviously not a, uh, pleasant conversation. Um, I personally, I'm a, a pescatarian. I just eat fish. Um, not not mammals uh, or or birds. But um, I hope that you all excuse the kind of uh, very unpleasant nature of this, uh, because this is, in a way, what Kashrut is supposed to uh, try to address is the fact that eating animals can be a unpleasant business, can be even bordering on, if we do it the wrong way, an immoral thing to do. And so trying to make us uh, strive to do this in, a, in as ethical a way as possible. So which ones, and we'll get into this in a little in a few minutes in a little bit more detail, which animals do we eat? The question is not only, perhaps why because God said so. Maybe uh, God said, uh, don't eat, pigs, uh, be, that's a that's a because God said so, but perhaps in a new, Idea about kosher, we might think about different reasons why to eat certain species and why not to eat others. That might be more related to intelligence, sentience, uh, connection to human beings, etc. For example, um, like I was saying earlier, an oyster uh, d- certainly does not have the same level of intelligence as a our our pet dog, for example. Um, issues of slaughter come up. There are very, very uh, detailed regulations and laws in Judaism about um, how to slaughter animals with the hope that slaughter um, occurs in the most painless way for the animal. So there is an idea that if your your knife is sharp enough and you only make one cut um, and it's right to the jugular, the animal will bleed out so quickly that it will feel um, almost no pain. You can, you can, if you ever have gotten cut, like a paper cut. Sometimes, if if the paper is sharp enough, you can get cut, um, and and start bleeding and not even realize that you got cut. You'll see the blood, but you didn't even feel the pain. I would I would assume that that's the same idea. Thankfully, I've never been in that position. Um, so, in traditional halakha, the only letter of the law prohibition is about um, how the animal is killed. It doesn't have much to say about how the animal is raised. It's only really concerned with that moment of slaughter. Um, It's not concerned with all of the months or years leading up to that, um, where the animal's on a farm or in your backyard, um, and what kind of life you give it before that moment. So we'll talk about this more in a little while, but one of the um, more contemporary or modern forms of kashrut um, is more concerned with not just the moment of slaughter, but the welfare of the animal all before that. Um, Finally, uh, another issue inherent with raising and slaughtering animals is the welfare not just of the non-human animal, but of the human beings. either raising or slaughtering these animals too. And we know that um, working in a slaughterhouse today is one of the most um, abused and difficult jobs in our society. And so having a a system of kashrut that doesn't take those people into account, uh, we have to wonder what the morality um, really embedded in that is all about. So let's talk for a second about some responses to this idea of um, concern for animals. How do we respond? There's certainly the traditional um, Jewish way, which is we eat animals, but we try to do so in the most moral or ethical way possible. Um, oops. Um, there's other responses. Some people totally forego the eating of animals whatsoever, though taking a page uh, for those of you who are here at the beginning, from Genesis 1:29, that says, actually, God uh, only wants us to eat, or at least the ideal would be for us to eat um, just plants. And so, uh, Rabbi Shmuley Yankelowitz, who's uh, a modern Orthodox rabbi but has a lot of connections to the Reform movement, I think he grew up in the Reform movement, and then he's written um, three books called three social justice commentaries through the Reform Press. One. I have up there, there to Pirkei Avot. Um, he also wrote a social justice commentary on Jonah, which we read on Yom Kippur. And I think he just came out with one other, but I can't think of what it is. Um, and then Rabbi Art Green, who wrote, um, he, he's the leading scholar today on Jewish mysticism, on um, Hasidut and on Kabbalah. And um, he runs the non-denominational rabbinical school Hebrew college. They both write uh, quite a bit about Jewish veganism and vegetarianism. And um, I'm happy to send you some materials, um, of theirs. That's one path, but that's kind of easy to understand. You just don't eat meat or, or animal products. So we're not going to go into a lot of detail on that. Um, but another response is, um, let's say falls into, and I'm just going to go back a few slides here. Um, why Kashrut? The point of kashrut is because it's ethical. Um, so both of these later responses, oops, excuse me, eco root and ethical root are trying to create a food ethic that responds um, to this kind of ethical imperative behind root. eco root, as you can imagine, is focused more on the environmental impact than other, other things. So this, could somebody please read, this is by Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who's um, a leading rabbi in the renewal
1: movement of Judaism um, and writes also a lot about earth Earth Torah. Um, could somebody please read what he said?
5: Today, most of us have shrugged away the sacred choice of foods we do not eat, the sacred pausing so that one seventh of the time we do not grow our foods. What can we learn by renewing the ancient text? For shepherds and farmers, root was the way of guiding their eating towards holiness. For us, eco kashrut should do the same. We should ask Is it eco Oh, is it eco kosher to eat vegetables and fruit that have been grown by drenching in by drenching the soil with? Insecticides. Is it eco kosher to drink Shabbat kiddush wine from non biodegradable plastic cups?
2: Thank you. And and he goes on it. And there's certainly quite a bit more to talk about with eco kosher root um, from farming practices um, with like he's saying fertilizer or insecticide um, from the entire supply chain of our food. Uh, there's. we'll get into this a little bit later, but there are a number of organizations trying to make Jewish food more sustainable or, or kosher food more sustainable. And they're not only focused on organic,
1: non-organic, um, but also um, the the carbon, uh, what's it called? The carbon, uh, I guess
2: something like the carbon cost of our food, how much carbon is going in. Uh, with transport, transporting our food over long distances, etc. But you get you kind of get the picture that um, eco-kashrut is concerned about the environmental impact of, of kashrut. Just go stepping um, a little broader for a sec. This to me seems clearly embedded under the umbrella of um, kashrut is about the impact is and has always been about the impact that our eating has on um, the world or on ourselves and the world around us, and so of course
1: we should be concerned about the environmental impact of our of our food consumption. Oh, very nice. So Sophie says many fruits and vegetables are also grown with blood and bone in,
2: uh, in the soil as a way to enrich enrich their growth. Very nice. So. Um, I wanna talk in a few minutes more about um, our good friend, Eli Steinberg is going to work on a a Jewish um, sustainable farm in uh, Isabella Friedman in Connecticut. That's run by this organization called Hazon, which we will uh, talk more about in a a few minutes. But the the whole idea behind that is um, raising produce in a sustainable way as kind of a model. They're kind of like a model farm that hopefully the lessons and example that they set there can be learned and spread throughout the Jewish world for, for our food ethic. Okay, but what is ethical kashrut? This this is related to eco-kashrut, but it's a little bit more broad. Um, the way that I see it, there are three different pillars in ethical kashrut, although you could, it, You could certainly come up with others, but these are the ones that tend to be emphasized. Um, The first is workers' rights. So we talked about this a second ago, um, that there are food food workers that work with animals, um, but there, of course, are also food workers that work on farms just raising vegetables. Uh, Many of them in in this country um, are not citizens, but come in either legally or illegally Um, from Mexico or Central America to to work the farms. Um, Certainly many of them are legal and there's a a special visa that they can get. But also, as we know, many um, do come in without legal status. But um, in ethical kashrut, they trace this imperative to treat workers with with respect and a certain level of um, ethical treatment all the way back to the Torah. So in what's called the Holiness Code, in Leviticus 19.3. These are laws that tell us um, how to be holy, and we'll actually read it together in about three or four weeks in our normal reading of the Torah cycle. Um, This says, you you shall not defraud your fellow Israelite. You shall not commit robbery, and this is the important part for this topic. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. So if, if somebody does does a job for you, um, you should not hold hold their wages, uh, withhold their wages from them. This is one of the primary base texts for the fact that we should be concerned about the welfare of of the workers that work for us and how we treat them. Um, I didn't put this quote in here, but in the 10 commandments, it's not only that we have to rest on Shabbat, but Our animals, we have to let our animals rest on Shabbat. And we also have to let our slaves, thank God we don't have slaves anymore. But in addition to your slaves, you have to let your workers rest on Shabbat too. Um, And then finally, um, this from Deuteronomy, you shall not abuse a needy and destitute laborer, whether a fellow Israelite or a stranger in one of the communities of your land. So these are kind of the three base um, texts proof texts for why workers' rights and labor rights are very
1: important in the Jewish tradition. Whew. okay, I'm just gonna take one sip of water.
2: Thank you, Linda. Um, by the way, why don't we also pause here for a moment. If anybody wants to comment on this or anything that we've already talked about, um, this would be a good time.
5: I think there's also like an argument that ethical kashrut is not just about the workers, but about the lives of the animals. Um, like that et- is the way that they're living ethical. We think about like cage-free versus organic and do these animals have enough space to live?
2: Very nice, very nice. And that's a perfect segue to this next point, Sophie. Um, not only in, inherent in Judaism is the idea that we need to protect workers, but also that we need to protect animals. There's there's a um, principle called "saar Ba'alei chayim," which means the suffering of animals. That we are, it's a it's a mitzvah to avoid that. So in Exodus twenty three five, uh, I'll just click this link so you can see Let's see. Well, that's okay, I'll just explain it. Um, We see that if you see a a donkey struggling under its load, if you see an animal struggling under its load, like somebody like a pack horse or a pack donkey that somebody packed uh, too much stuff on top and it's struggling under its load, even if that animal belongs to your enemy, it is a mitzvah to go help that animal and lighten its load and help that animal up. Even if it's for a person you hate, um, the The importance of the animal's welfare is so important that it, it is a mitzvah to go help that animal. So that's normally looked at as the basis of this principle, Saarba um, It's expounded later in the Talmud here in Bavli, mitzah twenty, uh, sorry, thirty two b. But um, that is a principle that undergirds a lot of Jewish um, morality towards animals, and. Sophie, you draw a really clear link between that and the modern case of raising animals for food. Um, If you look at the factory farming system today, uh, animals clearly are not treated in the same way that maybe they were Um, in ancient times in the times of the Torah. We know that for example, um, and I'm not trying to ruin anybody's lunch here, uh, but, you can look it up. Just Google factory farms, and you'll see um, how animals are treated. Um, and that that really runs
1: counter to um, the Jewish notion of how they should be. Anybody else want to want to hop in? Okay, well, there will, I, I have some actual direct questions I'll ask you in about 10 minutes
2: that I would really love your input on. Um, but the final one, and we've talked about this uh, a little bit, is the, envirom- the environmental impact on the earth. We, As Jews, from the very beginning of, of uh, the Torah, Genesis 2.15, um, God gives us the earth, And uh, God gives it to us, lauvda ulashomra, to um, to work it, or another translation would be to serve it, like um, the avodah Hashem, the service of God, um, or any any uh, work anytime this word avodah or laavod is used in the Torah doesn't just mean to work, but it means to serve. So uh, one explanation of this is we're supposed to serve the earth and Ul uh, Shomra, and to, what is a Shomer? Uh, like to be Shomer Shabbat is to keep Shabbat, so to keep the earth. But also if you go to Israel um, today and you'll, you see a security guard on the back of their shirt, it says a Shomer uh, because a, a Shomer also means uh, to guard. Um, and so they're guard. So we, we're supposed to serve it or work it and also to guard it. Um, So we have, deep within Judaism from the very beginning, an imperative to protect the earth. So for ethical kashrut, you shouldn't be able to say that anything is kosher if it doesn't uphold workers' rights, if it doesn't um, uphold animal rights, or, or it increases unduly the suffering of animals, and if it doesn't care for the earth it seems kind of crazy to slap something, a label on there, a hexer on there that says, this is kosher, this has the Jewish sample of approval, if it doesn't abide by all three of these things. Oh, um, and yet, if you go to Trader Joe's or to Kroger uh, today and you buy um, kosher meat, for it to get that kosher Hexure that we well, go back to the very beginning, there's like, there's like uh, 30 different or some huge number of different organizations that offer a kosher certification in America. Um, But for you to get this kosher stamp of approval, you actually don't have to align with any of these three things. None of these things have to be followed in order to get um, a kosher stamp of approval. So what does Rabbi Shmueli Yankowitz, who I mentioned earlier write? He, he quotes the Ramban, the Ramban um, Nachmanides, who is a 12th or 13th century rabbi in Spain. Um, w- would somebody please read what, what he says? I can read it. Um, the Ramban, oh, please. I'm please. happy
4: to. The Thank Ramban argued that if people consume food that is technically kosher, from a ritual perspective, but do not embrace the ethics that come along with consumption, then they are despicable with the permission of the Torah. How do you say that?
2: Uh, Neval Yershuta Torah, but exactly in English, despicable, but still with the permission of the Torah.
4: Yes, thank you. They have broken no formal Kashrut prohibitions, but their act is shameful. And they have not lived by the moral and ethical intentions of the Torah. Permissible consumption does not necessarily mean good consumption.
1: Thank you, Debbie. So, what do y'all think about this?
4: I have a personal perspective, okay. given that for well over a decade I've been whole food, plant based, um, no processed food at all, and. I think that this is a wonderful conversation for me because I don't know if I fully understood why I was making all the decisions that I did, but I knew that I needed to,
3: if that makes sense.
1: Very nice. So this is kind of um, giving you
2: a framework to think about why you made that decision, maybe subconsciously or maybe health-wise. Um, but this is another set of rationale
1: for whole food plant-based diet.
4: Yes. I, I think, I think it's just a, you know, ethics, right? Like what, what you can handle and that speaks to your inner spirit about what you're doing about what I'm doing. Um, so for me, I, I look forward to this Three day exploration of why we do what we do and how we live with ourselves when we ag- agree to do something and we think something died for me to have this. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, a deeper conversation for myself.
1: Thank you, thank you
2: for, for sharing that. And one thing I do want to say is that um, clearly uh, my practice is that I don't eat um, don't eat meat, but, uh, so I just want to say, I have that bias and, um, I think it's important in Judaism. It's important to say that the mainstream position in Judaism is not to be vegetarian or vegan. Um, there's that we, we have that strain in our tradition, people like Rabbi Muleyankiewicz, um, and, and others, but the mainstream position is to try to balance, um, eating of animals with, um, ethics. And so uh, the other thing in the in the favor of eating animals is in the tor in the Talmud. Excuse me, I I have to look up where this is. I don't know the citation. But in the Talmud, uh, there's a story about when we uh, die and go to heaven um, on the day of on the day of judgment, uh, or when we're judged at the gates of heaven. One of the things that God will ask us is, um, did you enjoy my world? Did you enjoy the fu- the fruits of my world? And I mean, by all accounts, I guess some people don't like the taste of meat, but by all accounts, you know, uh, a perfectly seared filet mignon is delicious. And so, I think to to say that we only get one life, and animals happen to taste very good to human beings, it's just a we evolved to uh, enjoy the taste of flesh. Um, and I want to do it because I I like it, and I only live once. I I think that is a, is a perfectly legitimate. A position that we should, um, we should take into account when making our own choice. And food ethics are, are very personal, right? Nobody else can really make a decision about food for you. It's something you have to do a few times a day. And I think it's important when we have conversations like this to say, um, this is the, the decision I made for me, but I can't, you know, you have just as, as much right as I do to make your own uh, decision about food. But we're all, I, I hope, engaged in this project of looking at our food choices through this ethical lens, which I think is really what the project of Kashrut is all about. So Linda, I see you have your hand up.
0: Yes, um, I'd, like, I'd like to go back to the workers rights because I think that's sure. so important. And it was just front and center earlier on in the pandemic related to these workers at these various meat packing plants and how uh, their, their rights, the he- their health, the health of their families, et cetera, was not, that just wasn't being protected at all. And so many of them became ill and died. And, and so, and I just wondered if, if you knew if this was also going on in the kosher meat packing plants, because we, we you know, we saw it with certain meat packing plants that we're familiar with. We see them, in, you know, just in the regular grocery store. And, um, but I, want, I wonder if that was happening in, in our kosher uh, packing plants also where, where people were really being, I mean, I would call it abuse as to what, definitely as to what was happening there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up and centering that story that there were workers that didn't have much of a choice. They, they could have left their jobs, um, certainly, but um, if they wanted to keep their jobs, they weren't given much of a choice uh for or much protection in those early days of COVID before vaccines um and obviously uh in a slaughterhouse is very tight quarters so they were at very high risk um as far as kosher plants I I don't want to say because I don't know the specifics um but I will say that there is a famous case and, and uh from Pottsville I think it's Iowa um, that happened a few years ago. There was like an undercover um, bust that documented all of these really horrible abuses that were happening at this certified kosher uh, plant in Pottsville. We could Google it, um, what state it was in. And it, it really went to show that um, the animals were not being slaughtered according to Jewish ritual law. Even there were tons of worker abuses um it was horrible um and yet they still got a kosher certification i do want to say in fairness um many kosher people kosher um certification organizations and um jewish slaughterhouse owners said that it oh thank you in pennsylvania possible pennsylvania um it said they said that this is not the norm uh that this was really an anomaly and um unfortunately, I don't, I'm not an expert enough to to know where, you know, where the truth exactly lies um, in the kosher meat industry. But um, I think it is important to be aware that in a system that is so, should be so concerned about ethics, um, that that egregious example slipped through the cracks, even if it's not the norm. Okay, let's move on to one other idea. And then I want Um, really want your input. So the one thing I wanted to share was that there are a number of organizations today um, that are working to bring um, Jewish ethics or or bring kashrut in line with the ethical principles we've been talking about. One of them, Magen Sedek, was started by the conservative movement and is embraced by their rabbinical arm. And um, it is, like a, um, a what's called a hexer, which is a, a stamp of approval that says this kosher meat is kosher by the letter of the law, but it also lives up to this higher standard that uh, meets a lot of the ethical criteria that we talked about. There is um, hazon, which is the organization where Eli Steinberg is going to go work on their their model farm at Isabella Friedman. And um, they have a seal of sustainability for Jewish organizations um, that, for example, a synagogue or the JCC um, could commit to trying to uh, uphold a certain criteria for our events and uh, our kitchen and and stuff like that. Um, Shamayim is an organization Uh, started by Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, who I've mentioned a couple of times today, they advocate for veganism, Jewish veganism, and, and have a lot of very deep, um, theological, um, underpinnings for why that should be the case. But they also argue for just, if you're going to eat animals, doing it in an ethical way. Um, this is more of a ethical kashrut. which is trying to get in the orthodox community more um, purveyors or people in the in the food system uh, to have ethical treatment of workers um, oh and also also um, at kosher restaurants so treating your uh your workers well and having safe conditions for them too and then this organization is really interesting um the jewish initiative for animals they are trying to um, end factory farming from a Jewish perspective. So not they're not against eating animals per se, but um, that if we are, we really need to change how how we raise and slaughter them. And I love this quote from um, this is on their website from the Talmud that says um, anyone who is compassionate to creatures receives compassion from the heavens. Um, I. I don't know that to be true, but I'm glad that our tradition says that. Okay, so here's what I'd like to use the last 10 minutes of our time together um, doing. I would love to to hear from you. In your life, do you have certain rules that you have set up for yourself, whether they align with traditional kashrut or not, um, that guide how you eat? And if not, how might, or if so, or with not, or if not, how might our conversation today shape how you view um, eating as either a moral or a spiritual practice?
5: Um, for me personally, uh, I spent a very long time as a vegan, and um, I think that. Like halfway through, even though I thought I was doing everything right, my body wasn't able to like keep up health wise, even with supplements and everything. And so I had to make like an informed decision for myself, like if I'm going to eat animal byproducts or if I'm going to eat fish. I eat fish. Um, how am I going to do that so that I can still do it as ethically and sustainably as possible, even if I'm not able to eat the way I would really like to.
1: Thank you, Sophie. You bring up a great point that sometimes, you know, we, we evolved to be
2: omnivores, right? So, and our bodies, everybody is different and everybody
1: needs different things to be healthy. Who else wants to, to share? While you're thinking, one thing that we didn't talk about, and I, I think we will, Rabbi Jeremy and I will talk
2: about over the next two two courses, is how intertwined Judaism and Jewish culture is with certain foods and certain cuisines. And so, um, what's his name? Uh, Jonathan Saffron Foer, the the writer, talks about this in his book Eating Animals. He's one. If you don't know him, he's one of the leading, I would say, top ten, certainly. Um, Jewish authors, uh, a fiction alive today. Um, But he wrote a nonfiction book about eating animals. And he talks about the fact that um, one of the most Jewish things that he does, like the thing that connected him to Judaism and to his family was eating his grandmother's some kind of chicken dish. I don't remember if it was matzo ball soup or um, I don't know, schmaltz, something, something, but something chicken related. And he was saying how his Um, Jewish identity was very wrapped up in, um, meat and eating meat. And so when we think about our food ethics, I think it's also important to hold up the fact that our traditions, our food traditions mean something too, that, um, these are things that we have to balance and hold, uh, as important all at the same time, that Bubby's recipe is all is important as is.
1: Uh, animal welfare, that both of those are, are, important things. Anybody else, any, anybody else want to talk about their, uh, ethical choices or, or ethic or ways they think about, um, eating. All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Um, I hope that, uh, we didn't spoil your appetite.
2: And um, we will see you back same time next week for a much more appetizing conversation led by Rabbi Jeremy about the intersection of Jewish culture
1: um, and American food culture. Everybody have a great day and Shabbat Shalom.